If we've not met, I'm Nathan Brand. I have the privilege to be the senior pastor here at Breen Community Church, and we're glad you're here to worship with us. Before we get going with today's message, we are dismissing children for Children's Church that's ages 4 through 1st grade, and they can follow Pastor Neil out the uh, north door here. So kids, we pray that uh, Jesus will meet you in that time together. Well, the sense of smell is a very powerful sense, isn't it? It is a, it is a, um, a sensory experience that moves us sometimes back to past emotions, past experiences, a different place and time. And just when you smell something, that particular smell, it takes you back somewhere. The combination of gasoline and cut grass takes me back to my grandfather Brand's garage in the summer in Columbus, Nebraska. He had his, his rider mower, his, his, you know, his, uh, I think it was Kenmore made it, and, uh, or maybe it was Craftsman. But, you know, that was my first experience in driving any kind of a four-wheel vehicle, right? I'm sitting in this thing, and I remember his deep voice. Ah, here you go, boy. You put the clutch in here. Make sure you shift to this gear. And then, don't go too fast, because you get out of control, you know. That was, I mean, I'm not being joking. That was his, his voice. But whenever I smell those, those two things, cut grass and gasoline, I'm transported back there. A couple weeks back, I made a roast for the family. I put a roast in a slow cooker, vegetables around it, you know, some seasoning on it. And a little later that day, Emma comes in. She goes, smells like Christmas to me. Because traditionally, over the last few years, the Brand family has had a pot roast for Christmas Day. For, so for my daughter Emma, that transports her to Christmas. Pastor Neil, I asked him about this. He said the smell is hot glue of all things. But here's the story behind it. His mother had a workshop in the back of the house where she, she would put together these plastic floral arrangements using hot glue. And as a young man, Neil was in a Christian house, but he, he wanted to find out what does it mean to really put your faith in Jesus? What does it really mean? And so he found his mom in her workshop the smell of hot glue wafting through the air. And she shared with them about what it really meant to follow Jesus. They went through the gospel together. And it was there in that workshop that Pastor Neil put his faith in Christ and started following Jesus. So whenever he smells hot glue, it's that memory for him. Now I guess the smell of pumpkin spice tells us we're heading into October, November. But there are unpleasant smells, aren't there, also, that kind of remind us of, of negative things. If you're in your car and you start to smell the smell of boiling antifreeze, or maybe the smell of burning rubber of a belt or a worn-out tire, uh, you start to have that sinking feeling that maybe you're going to be on the side of the road for a bit. Or perhaps it's the smell of a freshly disinfected room. 
you come in and you remember maybe an unpleasant experience you had at a doctor's office or a dentist's office. You know, whenever I still smell rubbing alcohol, I always think a shot is coming. Right? They rub it on your shoulder and here it comes. On even fragrances that are intended to be pleasant, like perfume or, or cologne, can be negative. Sometimes, because it's just overwhelming, right? This, uh, unfortunately, this happens to be very true with young people. They find a fragrance they, they like, and then they spray it all over themselves. Kids, all I've got to say is less is more, okay? Learn that trick, and you'll, you'll be in good shape. But also, sometimes, the person wearing that fragrance maybe has been unkind or abusive to us. And even though it was intended to smell good, it brings unpleasant thoughts, fear, hurt from your past. The point being, the sense of smell can evoke into strong feelings and emotions and memories. But even so, we who follow Christ have an aroma have a smell, if you will, to the world around us. You see, when someone comes face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, and they start to understand and grasp all that Jesus has done, and all that Jesus even demands in following Him, well, there's an aroma that goes out. And the response is either positive or perhaps negative. There is no neutral ground. But there is an aroma that comes out when Jesus is being presented. And it evokes a response. So that's where we're heading today. We've been in our study through 2 Corinthians. If you want to open up your Bibles there, we're going to be in chapter Two, and we're going to read verses 12 through 17. And I'm going to turn off my mic for a moment so you don't have to hear me cough because I. Can you hear me now? Okay, good. So we're going to read verses 12 through 17. And I, I'm going to tell you right now this what we're going to read or what's going to be projected here is going to be in the NIV from the 1984 version. And you'll see why this has an insignificance here a little bit later. But I just want to read it. This is from NIV 1984. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who leads us in triumphal procession in Christ through us, who, uh, hello, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. Who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity like men sent 
from God. So allow me to lead us in a word of prayer, and then we'll dig into what the Apostle Paul was trying to express to his original audience and to us today. So Lord Jesus, I thank you for all the truth that we have proclaimed today. Lord Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Redemption indeed was written on your hands. And you are a God who came to save the world, the nations. And you've come to save so many of us. And I thank you, Lord. You have turned on the light for so many of us like Pastor Neil, years ago in his mom's workshop, that we might see the glory of who you are, Lord Jesus. But if there's somebody in here today who is resisting you or does not see the life that you want to give, I pray you will open her or his heart today to respond to the life you want to give. But help us to see what you have for us in your word today and help us to respond in spirit and in truth. Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. So before we get into these few verses in earnest, there's some things I I want to highlight here before we get there. They'll make much more sense as we continue through this, this passage. Number one, Paul, as we've seen, has been very concerned about the spiritual health of the Corinthian church and about his relationship with them especially in light of a rebuking letter that he sent to them and some things they haven't dealt with. And we talked about that a little bit last week. But also the criticism that he's received that he didn't come to them with the plans that originally were set for him to return. And you can read about that in verses 1-4 through of this chapter. But those are the things that concern him. Number two, Titus. Titus, who he couldn't find in in Troas. Titus was Paul's messenger to the Corinthians. And we'll see that more clearly when we get to chapter 7. But it's through Titus he sent this rebuking letter to them. And so he gets distressed when he goes up to Troas. It seems that maybe they made some previous arrangements. Let's meet in Troas. And he's not there. Because he wants to find out from Titus how did they receive it? How did they get it? Have you ever sent uh, an email or an, a letter and you had some things you had to say and then you wait until the response? That's what's going on in Paul. It's that, it's that anxiety of like, how are they going to respond? And realize, hey, there's no email. There's no texting. Even the, the, you know, the postal service is probably somewhat suspect. So he, he sent his personal messenger, and he's not able to find him. So that's what's causing him distress. Number three. Number three. Paul presents himself to the Coloss- I mean, Corinthians as his sent apostle. But how he presents himself is not as this I got the tiger by the tail. I have all the answers. I'm amazingly gifted. I'm amazingly charismatic and, and competent. But rather, he presents himself in weakness rather than personal strength and giftedness. And he does this for a specific reason in order that their confidence, 
Their dependence would be on Christ, would be in the Holy Spirit, would be in God the Father, rather than in human giftedness. And we saw this earlier, actually in the, the opening chapter, where Paul is talking about, hey, they were in Asia Minor, and you know, this is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. We despaired of life itself because of the trials and the weakness that we felt. And, and then he explains it in verse 9 of chapter 1. He says, these happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's saying, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I want your dependence, you're looking for spiritual triumph to be in Christ and not in yourselves, not in your own gifting or your own competence. So, as I've read through this passage, we see that Paul kind of jumps from one word picture to another. He's close to mixing his metaphors. And these images are powerful, but they're hard to kind of preach in kind of this outline uh, method. So I have presented this today in a series of questions that may help us understand what Paul is trying to communicate to them, to the to the Corinthians, and to us. So, question number one. What am I concerned about? What am I concerned about? Verses 12 through 13. Now I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me. I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Again, Paul's kind of giving us his travel itinerary. He sent his letter of rebuke down to Corinth with Titus, went up to Troas, and he's hanging out there. And this is exciting because God is opening a door for the gospel to spread. People are listening. And if you recall, if you recall the spread of the gospel, Paul originally was making his way up towards Asia Minor, and he was hoping that he could take the gospel into Asia. But the Spirit forbid him. And so he was holed up in a place called Troas, and the Holy Spirit said, now go to Macedonia. He has a dream. So that's kind of how we get all the way down to Corinth. But now, now an opportunity, this is northern Asia Minor, to spread the gospel has come. And, you know, it's exciting. When you tell people about Jesus and they respond, the Lord has opened a door for him. But he was distracted. He was distracted because he's... I know this is exciting and it's so cool, but i got to know what's happening in Corinth. And my, my man Titus has not come. I, I need to go down to Macedonia and find him. I need to find out what is going on in this church because I do not want the gospel to be perverted in Corinth. I need that church to hold on to Jesus and Jesus alone. So Paul says goodbye in Troas, in a place where the gospel seems to be making traction. All I can say is it's a very human response. It's a very human response, isn't it? 
From our vantage point, it seems like Paul is punting. It seems like Paul bailed on what God was doing. And maybe he did. I don't know. I mean, it's just all narrative. There's no, there's no statement on this was good or this was bad. It's just the narrative. It's what I did. It's what happened. But the point being is that while he was, we're engaged in doing the Lord's work, perhaps something comes along in our lives that concerns us. And we need to change plans. We have to leave. I think about, you know, I think about Justin and Jamie. And, you know, Lord willing, they're going to be in Thailand by the end of January. But there may come along a thing where, you know, they, they get a message like, hey, your father is in the hospital. You need to come back. And maybe God's bringing traction. It's like, uh, what do I do? Because I want to honor what the Lord is doing, but I also want to honor my father and mother, which God commands us to do. Here's the question. Is the Lord big enough to deal with those changes in plans or circumstances? Is the Lord big enough to deal with changes in plans or circumstances? Is he bigger even than our human weaknesses to accomplish his purposes? I think Paul thought so. Paul thought so. Because in verse 14 it says this. So I went back to Macedonia. The gospel is spreading. But, thanks be to God, who leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. You see, through the preaching of the gospel, Paul had the opportunity to do. The fragrance and the knowledge of Christ went out. And there was triumph in how the word of Christ got out and was doing its work in the hearts of men and women. Even if Paul was not able to stay there and to, to nurture those fresh believers. But it's, it's, it's the truth of what I think Isaiah was saying in Isaiah 55, 11. So it is with my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, God says, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which it was sent. Maybe, brothers and sisters, there are some things we have to leave incomplete. And even though we've been faithful with proclaiming the gospel, making the message known, faithful with the Word of God, we have to let it go and trust that God is at work. Here's the Paul Harvey moment, or the rest of the story, as he would say. Anyone ever heard of Eutychus? You know who Eutychus is? He's that guy in Acts chapter 20, as Paul is preaching all night. He's sitting in the window, and he falls asleep, and he falls to the ground out of the window, right? And Paul rushes down and you know, prays for him, and he revives him. You know where that happens? It's Troas. There is a church, a viable church in Troas. In fact, that's where Pe- 
where Paul stages before he's about ready to head off to, to uh, Jerusalem. The Word of God did not return void. A, a church was born there. And that's where Paul hung out before he headed off to Jerusalem. If you know the rest of the story, he ends up in prison from there. But he could trust God with that. He could leave that in God's hands. So let me read that verse again. But thanks be to God who leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. That's the NIV 1984 edition. So here's the question. What kind of triumph does Jesus have in my life? What kind of triumph does Jesus have in my life? You see, the word picture, especially contextually, is that of a Roman general marching into Rome with his legions, the conquering force, marching through Rome victoriously after a battle. That is that, that triumph. It's a word we get the English word triumph from, out of the Greek. But listen to this. But usually what accompanied that was not only the marching, conquering army, but also the captives in their train at the very end. POWs, who were captured, apprehended, and most likely heading towards a life of servitude for their captor. The question is about this verse, is what kind of triumph does the believer experience? Is Paul saying that they are part of Christ's conquering army? That they are more than conquerors, they are co-conquerors with Christ, if you will. And we overcome through the power of Jesus. And, you know, the Apostle Paul says we are more than conquerors in Romans chapter 8, verse 37. Or, now listen to me, and this is just not theological nerddom. I'm going someplace with this. Are we, the PO, are we the POWs that have been apprehended in this procession by the power of Christ and on display for God's glory and triumph? This is how the NIV 2011, the latest version of the NIV reads. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. This is the latest translation. Now you have to understand the, the um, translation philosophy of the NIV. It's not always word for word, more so it's thought for thought. Thought for thought. So here is the apologetic for this translation, because it, it doesn't read like that in the Greek. It's been added. They're fleshing out this word of triumphal procession. First of all, number one, this is what really happened in life. This is, this is, this is what the triumphal procession looked like. There was a conquering army, and there were, there were captives in the train. That's the complete picture, if you will. And that's why the editors of the 2011 version decided to do that as part of it. Number two, number two, because of Paul's own experience. 
listen to this, as Saul's Tarsus, of being at war with Jesus and his people. And then being captured, if you will. Apprehended by Jesus. And finding a different kind of captor. Number three, because of what Paul said in this, what we have is his first letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 4, verse 9. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to the angels as well as human beings. So this is, this is the reason why this version of the NIV is sought to expand this thought, if you will. But I will tell you it is not in the Greek. It's just triumphal procession. And if you ask me what I, I prefer, or what I, not what I prefer, excuse me, what I think is correct, and I am no Greek scholar, so um, I'm going to confess that right now. I think the simpler version is a better rendition. It's a better translation. Number one, because I think if Paul intended to have that captive language there, he would have put it in the he would have put it in the Greek. He would have done that. We would have that. But number two, and here's here's where I'm going with this. Contextually, it seems like Paul was taking a loss, an L, if you will, in Troas. Right? He was abandoning this, but he says no. But praise be to God who leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. I'm trusting that God is going to do up there what I cannot do. That's where my confidence is. And that's why I can have victory in this situation. That's why I think that's how it should be translated. But now I'm going to argue for the other side for a second. And I'm not trying to just bring up trivia because I'm going someplace with this. Again, my question would be, how many of us, before putting our faith in Christ, were at war with Him? We were at war with Him. We were saying, what do you mean, Jesus? Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. You know, to, to die to self, if you will. That seems like being a captive. But when we finally surrender, we realize that following Jesus is not about drudgery or bondage, but actually freedom and joy. So just hang on to that thought, and it's going to visit us here in a moment. I'm going to ask you, what does Jesus smell like to you? What does Jesus smell like to you? Verse 15 and 16. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. Again, following this triumphal procession kind of imagery, what would happen is oftentimes they would burn incense in the victory of this. It was kind of a worship service, if you will. 
But that same fragrance meant something to everyone different in the, in the procession, didn't it? What, did it? what does it smell like to God? What does Jesus smell like to God the Father? In verse 15, we read, For we are the aroma of God, of Christ, among those being saved. Literally, we are a sweet-smelling fragrance of Christ to the Father. The gospel has accomplished its purpose in sinful men and women who were once my enemies, who were my image bearers, and I loved them. And now they are reconciled to me. Because of my son's death. Because of the son I love went out of love for me and love for them. And for everyone who puts their faith in him. Oh, these are the trophies of my grace. It is a sweet smelling aroma. My son's coming for them was not in vain. But he accomplished the purpose of transforming men and women to my, from my enemies to my children. What a sweet smelling aroma. Where death once reigned, now life reigns. To God, the aroma of Christ is a sweet smelling fragrance. To those who won't believe in Christ, it is the smell of death. It is literally the odor of death to death. Yes, because those who will not put their faith in Christ will eventually experience God's judgment upon their rebellion. And the Scripture tells us the wages of sin is death. And without a mediator, they will earn their wages. But second of all, it's because surrender to Christ is repugnant to them. Surrender to Christ is repugnant. Because that means I have to give up myself. My self-righteousness. Hey, I'm not as bad as the next guy. I mean, look at them. I'm not doing what they're doing. I'm not so bad. The thing is, the comparison is not between you and me. The comparison is between us and a holy God. That's the comparison. We have to give up our self-righteousness. Because blessed are the poor in spirit. We have to give up our thought of self-salvation. Okay, okay, yeah, okay, I've, I've blown it. You know, but, hey, just give me a list. Show me what i got to do. You know, you know I'll, I'll do it. And, and then we'll be good, right, God? No. No. You and I cannot satisfy God by our good deeds because they're still marred with sin and wrong motives and we're going to fail 
The standard is perfection. That's repugnant. I don't like that. Self-determination. You mean I have to actually be accountable to God? I'm not free to do what I want? When I want? With whom I want? Whenever I want? No. There is a sense of what is right and what is wrong. And God is the standard who says that. He's the one who holds that up. Not ourselves. We don't like that. It's repugnant. And then there's self-gratification. Man, I, I know... I know Jesus wants to give me life, but I don't want to give this up. I don't want to let go of this. Because I, when I do it, I feel so alive, or I, I like it. Well, at least for a while. And then I get to return to it again and again and again. And But the thought of surrendering that, putting that to death, I don't know. I don't know. The surrender of self. That's so why often Jesus is the smell of death to people. Because He's offering life. He's offering life. But we cannot come to terms with putting ourselves to death. Or allowing Jesus to do that in us and through us. That's why it's the smell of death. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you've been holding Jesus at, at arm's length. And maybe you even know the Gospel. You know all that He offers. But you think, I, 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 can't, turn that, I can't turn that area over. I can't surrender that. Look, I'm not going to tell you that following Jesus is easy because it's not. But I I just want to tell you that Jesus says, hey, I came to give life and I came to give it to the full. And that might not be exactly what you think it is, but in the end, you experience the fullness of joy within that. And we are lost without Him. Maybe you need to know that Jesus is actually offering you life today. He wants you to have His life rather than the death that you continue to enter into because you will not surrender to Him. You see, again, the wages of sin is death. And the beginning of John, John says the, the enemy only comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And sometimes the things that we think are bringing us freedom are actually bringing us bondage. Maybe you need to revisit about how you're smelling Jesus, if you will. Those of us who believe, He is the odor of life, from life to life. (sighs) Reconciliation with your Maker. No longer condemned before a holy God. 
You are forgiven. You are accepted. You are His child. And that is not based upon your ability to perform or, you know, keep, keep all the rules. It's based on His grace and His grace alone. What a great thing to lean into. To have life in Him because He came and lived this life. He came went to the cross and He rose from the dead. He gives us eternal life. He gives us purpose. He gives us the indwelling of His Holy Spirit which is amazing. Because that person of the Godhead is the one who allows us to live the the Christian life. Not our self-will. Not our white-knuckling it. His mercies that are new every morning. And so much more. And I'm not going to tell you that His commands are always easy. John challenged us earlier, right? With the whole area of our giving. To trust Him in that area. But He wants to do it through us and in us, right? For us to trust Him, to allow His work in us to do what we cannot do. Even in our weakness, He is strong. And it is the smell of life for the believer. You know, this Thursday we get to host Minnesota Adult Teen Challenge graduation. And if you're not doing anything at 3 o'clock, be here. Because it is an awesome hour to see what God has done. But what I love about that hour is to see these clients who have been in bondage, and they have been in bondage, horribly. And they can declare the freedom that they have in Christ. Does that mean it's, it's easy street after putting their faith in Christ? No. They're working, they're working hard, and they're trusting Jesus. But they're given freedom. And I love that. It is, it is something so cool to celebrate. But here's, here's the next question. Do you or I, or even the Apostle Paul, have what it takes? Have what it takes to make the gospel known, to live the Christian life? He says this at the end of verse 16. It's just this off-the-cuff off the comment, but I think Paul is, again, putting forth his weakness. And who is equal to such a task? Who is equal to such a task? The answer to the rhetorical question is, none of us. None of us except the Lord Jesus. The point is, the Christian life is not a self-improvement program. To maximize our gifting and potential, rather, is a life of faith depending upon allowing Christ to live His life in you and in me, beyond our capabilities, beyond our giftings, beyond our weaknesses. It's what Paul was saying in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. And he's going to reiterate this same truth over and over in this letter. Let me give you a teaser of what's coming up in chapter 4. 
But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Y'all are a bunch of crackpots. And am I t- as, a, as am I. But this all-surpassing power, this treasure is Christ in us. The hope of glory. And that is something, I'm going to tell you, brother or sister, if you're trying to live the Christian life on your own, until you grasp this truth, you are going to be slaving and you're going to be discouraged. Until you say, okay, Jesus, I can't do this. You have to do it in me. And you'll be set free to allow him to do that in you. But here's, here's where I want to go with this. Because maybe God is calling you to do something. Like Justin and Jamie. They're going to Thailand. And you sense it's bigger than what you can do within your own gifting, your own talents, your own background, what have you. Stop asking, do I have what it takes? Ask the question, and you need to nail this down, truly, is God calling me to this? The question you need to answer, is God calling me to this? If He is, then we don't need to limit Him by what we think we can do. Because who is equal to this task? Not you, not me, but Jesus in you. Don't limit God by what you think you can do. The last question, as we wrap things up here. Who is my audience in preaching or presenting Christ? Verse 17. Unlike so many, we do not peddle the Word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. You know, in many a Greco-Roman city, there were itinerant preachers who were preaching the latest and greatest fad, the latest and greatest religious or philosophical fad. It's kind of like fidget spinners. Y'all remember that? Fidget spinners? Anyone have one here today? In, in the room. Three, four years back, you didn't see a kid who wasn't holding one of those things, Right? Oh, we need this. We need this to help our kids focus. Okay, whatever. But my point is this. There are lots of fidget spinners of religion or philosophy that came and went. And now that is the thing of the past. And one of the things that convinces me of the validity and the veracity of the gospel is that it has stood the test of time. If Jesus did not rise from the dead... I think it would have died in the first century easily. But it has withstood the test of time. And the point being is, unfortunately, there are those who, in the name of the gospel, use it for a means to make a buck or advance their own self-interest or self-importance. But Paul's saying, look, we don't do that. On the contrary, I carry the responsibility that when I open my mouth and I preach the good news I am preaching before God. I know that I am responsible to God because God is the one who sent me. I didn't do this because it was a great career path. I did this because God called me. 
and I preach it with sincerity. And when I mean sincerity, I mean because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. And it really is good news. It really does set people free. And I'm not preaching it. Paul's saying to the Corinthians, because I want to impress you or make you like me for any self-gain. In fact, his gospel is pretty simple. Christ and Him crucified, right? Which is a pretty poor message if you're looking for a marketing scheme. But there's the rest of the story. That Jesus conquers death. He's just saying, in sincerity, I hope you see that that is my motive. And I hope that you respond. And then for those of us who have opportunity to share the gospel, whether we're on staff at a church or not, this has to be our heart. I'm not doing this for any self-promotion, self-gain. I sincerely want you to experience the life that Jesus has for you. That's why I want you to hear the gospel and respond to it. But here's the problem. Again, so many see the message of the gospel as the aroma of death because they've seen somebody take advantage of the gospel and use it for their own exploitive means. And I want to tell you, all those men, all those women will have to stand before God and they will be held accountable. But here's my point. Don't mistake the abuse of a messenger for the message. Don't allow that to obscure the aroma of Christ. Don't allow their stink to override the life aroma of Jesus. Because He really does want to give you life. He really does love you. He really does want to do when you more than you can ever ask or imagine. Some verses that we oftentimes quote here. John 3.16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. And brothers and sisters, that doesn't mean He just hung out for a little while. He went to the cross. He unjustly took upon Himself our punishment because of the love of the Father and the love of us. He wanted us to be reconciled. God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him, again, that belief is trusting in Him rather than trusting in ourselves, should not perish. Perish? Yeah, perish. Because we're all heading towards Judgment, God's just judgment without a Savior, should not perish but have everlasting life. And the second verse says, <clears throat> For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. He's not in here a, con- a condemnation mission, but through Him to save the world. 
But again, how are you going to respond to this aroma of Christ? How are you going to respond? Because very soberly, the Scripture says in the, in the epistle of John, chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, this is the testimony that God has given eternal life. And that life is in His Son. But here's the demarcation. He or she who has a son has life. He or she who does not have the son does not have life. I hope today you smell the aroma of Christ and will choose life in Him. So let me pray and I'll have the worship team come and close us here. And today, if you feel like you need to respond to Jesus, you need to put your faith in Him. You need to transfer that aroma from that of life, excuse me, of death to life. Would you pray with me? What I'm going to say are not magic words, but they are the expression of a sincere heart that wants to respond to the gospel. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came and you died for me because of my sins. Because my rebellion makes me guilty of sinning against a holy God. But you've come to offer me life and I want to take you up on your offer. So Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Help me to turn away from that self-determined life. Let me put my faith in you and come into my heart. Change me. Make me your own. Captivate me, if you will, Lord, and give me the life I do not have in myself. That I might be your child. That I might have life in you. And that I might have the life to the full that you promise. So Lord Jesus, I receive you because of your promise that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So I receive you in my heart today. And for the rest of us, Lord, would you help us to be the aroma of Christ to a watching world that so desperately needs you. Help us not to stink up the message by our own self-interest but to preach it with sincerity because of the grace that we have received and we just want to pass that grace on to others. We were poor in ourselves and we are rich in Christ. And we want to pass on those riches to others. So Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming for us. Father, thank you for making us your children, giving us eyes to see. And we pray that you'll continue to open eyes to the truth of who your Son is. Lord Jesus, in your precious name I pray these things. Amen.
So receive this benediction, these good words from God's Word. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power. According to his power that is at work in all of us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's go forth in that confidence. You're dismissed.